Jesus, we just invite you to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come into this time. Come into this place. Come into your people. Lord, we turn this service over to you and just ask you to have your way with us, with me. We give you all thanks and praise. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, would you do me a favor? Would you grab the remote? All right. Well, up to this point, we've been looking at these various steps in uh, what we call the road to recovery. And this is all based on the Celebrate Recovery Ministry that we are in the process of kind of working towards and, and getting going. Uh, we have training to do before we can offer it to the public. And so we're in the midst of going through that training. But I felt like it was a good time to, to start to go through um, these steps just to sort of help people understand and, and uh get a feel for what this ministry is all about. And so, to this point, we've talked about the first five, um, five steps. So step one is the realize step, which is realize I'm not God. I admit I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and my life is unmanageable. Okay, so that's step one. Step two is, is uh, keyed by the word earnestly, Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. All right. Step three, consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Step four, openly examine and confess, confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. All right. Step five, which we talked about last week, Voluntarily submit to any and all changes God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Okay, so that's what we've kind of covered up to this point. So today, we're going to look at step six. And step six on the road to recovery is about doing uh, what I would call a little relational repair work. Okay, it requires you to evaluate some things in your life as we go through this this step. And so that's what the E actually stands for, is evaluate. Evaluate all my relationships. I actually have this down. Evaluate all my relationships, offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me, and make amends for harm I've done to others when possible, except when to do so would harm them or others. Okay. So that's step six. Now this is based, uh, each one of these is based on a, a passage of scripture. And this in particular is based on uh, Ephesians chapter four, verses 31 and 32, which says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay? So, there are two parts to this step. Okay? The first is the forgive those who have hurt me step. And then second, we have the make amends to those people that I have hurt. Okay? So let's talk, first of all, about forgiving those who have hurt me. And the question that immediately may come up is, well, why should I forgive? Well, let me offer you a few reasons to think about. Perhaps first and foremost, because God has forgiven you. And if God has forgiven you, then you should forgive other people. In Colossians, it says, never hold grudges. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And when we remember how much God forgives of me, of you, makes it a whole lot easier for me to forgive someone else. 
Because, you see, you will never have to forgive anybody more than God has already forgiven you. And the, the tricky thing here is that people who feel unforgiven find it difficult to offer forgiveness. And so we need to realize that God initiated this, has forgiven us, and therefore that part is taken care of, and all we have to do is then turn and forgive other people. So that's reason number one, first and foremost. Number two, because resentment doesn't work. Resentment is unreasonable, unhelpful, and unhealthy. Okay? Resentment is like shooting yourself so you'll hit somebody else when the gun recoils. It doesn't work. See, when you get angry and when you get resentful to somebody, you don't hurt them. You're doing all the worrying, the stewing, the spewing. You're all upset about it. But guess what? It's not bothering them at all. They don't know, they don't have a clue what you're going through. I think I got an amen over there somewhere. <laughs> have you ever, even once, one time, talked to somebody who's been resentful and hear them say, I feel so much better because of my resentment? <laughs> Just once. No, you're not going to hear that. You need to forgive the people that have hurt you for your own sake, not for theirs. And three, and this is a guarantee, because I'll need forgiveness in the future. Okay? Like I said, the Bible says we can't receive what we're unwilling to give. We need to forgive other people because God has forgiven us, because resentment doesn't work, and because we're going to need forgiveness in the future. And you don't want to burn the bridge that you're eventually going to have to walk across. Amen? So that's why. That's the why part. All right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the how. How do I forgive the people that have hurt me? Well, reason... Well, Step number one in this process is to reveal your hurt. Admit it. Let it out. Face it. Be honest about it. You can't get over a hurt until you actually admit what it was. See, I, and I don't, I don't understand this. I don't understand a lot about human behavior. But for some reason, we do not want to admit the times that people that we love and that love we know love us have hurt us. It's just very difficult for us to do. It might be because we have this misunderstanding that you can't love somebody and be angry at them at the same time. But you really can One pastor describes a counseling session he was in in which the person said, I forgive my parents. They did the best they could. Well, the more they talked about it, the more he saw that she really hadn't forgiven her parents. She was still very angry inside. But she said she had forgiven them. Well, that's denial. See, the thing is, they didn't do the best they, can, they could. My parents didn't do the best they could, and neither did yours. If, you're a, if you are a parent right now, I will just go ahead and tell you, you're not doing the best you can. You know why? You're not perfect. <laughs> I'm not, you're not, no one is. Therefore, we can never do the best we can. Nobody does the best they can. If we say we are, that's a form of denial. And so eventually this, this counselee was able to admit, no, they didn't do the best they could. They treated me in some ways that were wrong. And once she got to that point, she could then forgive them. 
Because you can't forgive what you don't want to own up to. That someone has hurt you. And so the first thing you've got to do is to reveal your hurt. Admit it. Put it down on paper if that's what helps you. Okay? So step one is that. Step two is to release the offender. Release, I release my offender. I let them go. I stop holding on to the hurt. You're thinking, well, that's easy for you to say. How do you do that? How do you release an offender? Well, you do it by forgiving them. It's the only way you can release them. You do not wait for them to ask for forgiveness. You do it whether they ask for it or not. Because remember, you're doing it for your sake, not theirs. This is about your recovery, not their recovery. And so you release them and you forgive them. Now, when you release an offender, it's not always possible, and I would say that oftentimes it's not even advisable for you to go back and, and confront or speak to somebody who has hurt you. The circumstances may have totally changed. Um, I think maybe I mentioned that my friend, the pastor, who had decided that when he answered his calling, he was going to go back and, and seek forgiveness from everybody that he somehow remembered he had hurt, you know, in some way. <laughs> Well, 90% of the people looked at him like he was crazy because they had no recollection that, of anything that he'd ever done. He was the one who was carrying it around. They had forgotten it. So what do, you, what do you do in that kind of a situation? How can you go about doing this and make it effective? Well, I think you can use something called the empty chair technique. You get a chair... You set it down in the room, and you imagine that the person is sitting in the chair with you, or, or right in the room with you, in that chair. And you go, I need to say some things to you. Here's how you have hurt me. And you just lay it out. You hurt me this way, this way, this way. But I want you to know that I forgive you because God has forgiven me. And because I want forgiveness in the future, I'm releasing you. And you just say that to the chair. Or, another way that's very effective for people is you can write it out in a letter that you're never going to mail. That's the important part. This was a, a very popular way that President Harry Truman used to deal with issues in his life. And he kept to it except on one occasion. And that was when his daughter sang publicly and a critic wrote a scathing review of, of, her, of her performance in the paper. And he mailed that letter. <laughs> and I guess you can't fault a father defending his daughter, right? Even if he's the president of the United States. Uh, but he kept a drawer full of, of these letters that he wrote when he was feeling that way. And it was his way of gaining, uh, of forgiving them, of kind of just getting it out and getting it off his chest. And so you can do that. You can just unload it all in a letter, or you can speak to a chair. But at the very end of it, you would say, but starting today, I forgive you because God has forgiven me. And so you release them so you can experience the freedom. And then next, you replace the hurt with God's peace. Now some people will complain, well, but if I forgive them, then they're getting away scot-free. No, they don't. Keep the big picture in mind, remember? Let God settle the score. God is the judge. That's why we're to not to judge. He has claimed that responsibility and that privilege as judge. And so if you will let him take care of it, I guarantee you he will do a much better job of it than you will. 
The Bible says that one day God is going to settle the score and he's going to call all the accounts and he's going to balance the books and he's going to have the last word. So let God do that. Let God have the last word. He is a very just and fair judge. So just release the person and then shift your focus on God's peace rather than on trying to get even. Let that peace rule in your heart. The fact is, relationships can tear your heart to pieces. It's no secret. We've all been there. But God can glue those pieces back together and surround it and cover your pieces with his peace. And so you just release those people so that God can begin to do that repair work in your heart. And then this idea of making amends to those I've hurt. And so there's the second half to this step because not only have people hurt you, but you've hurt some people yourself. And so the second half of this is to make amends to people that have hurt you. Now, again, someone might ask, well, is this really necessary? I would say absolutely yes. Hebrews 12 says, watch out that no bitterness takes root among you. For as it springs up, it causes deep trouble, hurting many in their spiritual lives. Did you get that last part? In their spiritual lives. If you're having trouble connecting to God, this would be a good place to look to see if there's something going on here. Because Scripture tells us right there, this is one of those things that can create a blockage there. So what God is saying is there's a reason that you can't get over that habit or that hang-up or that hurt. And the reason is because you're holding on to some unresolved thing in your life. And you've got to deal with those if you're ever really going to get going on this road to recovery and become the person that God wants you to become and enjoy the kind of happiness that he wants you to enjoy. Well, again, let's go through this list. How do I do this? How do I make amends? Well, first of all, you make a list of those that you've harmed and what you did. All right, so now I mean, I'm reading your minds, and you're saying, well, I can't really think of anybody that that's, that that's the case for. Well, I figured you'd say that. So I'm going to help you with a few starters. Is there anyone you owe a debt to that you have not repaid? Is there anyone you've broken a promise to? Is there anyone that you are guilty of over-controlling, such as a spouse, a kid, a brother, an employee, a friend? Is there anyone that you are overly possessive of? Is there anyone that you are hypercritical of? Is there anyone that you have been verbally abusive to? or physically abusive, or emotionally abusive? Is there anyone that you have not appreciated, or not paid attention to, or forgotten an anniversary? Is there anyone I've been unfaithful to? Is there anyone I've lied to? Is that enough to get you started, or do I need to go on? See, you make a list of those you've harmed, and what you've done. The second thing is that you think of how you would like someone to make amends to you. Luke 6.31 says, Do to others as you'd have them do to you. So you stop and you think about this and you go, all right, well, if someone were going to come and apologize to me for something that they did, how would I want them to do it? And then you go and you do it that way. 
So I think there's maybe three issues that you could look at here. First of all is timing. Ecclesiastes 8.6 says there is a right time and a right way to do everything. So what, what sort of constitutes timing? Well, you don't just drop a bomb on someone. Right? You don't do it as they're rushing out the door or they're just about to lay their head down on the pillow. You do it according to their time, not when it's necessarily best for you, but when it would be best for them. Second is attitude. How would you like someone to apologize to you? Well, let me suggest that you would want it done privately, with humility, with sincerity, to simply say that what they did was wrong and not to make any justification for it. No excuses, no talk about your part in it, just assume the responsibility. They may have had a large part of the problem. But all you're trying to do here is clear up your side of things. Okay? Your side of the ledger is what we're working with. And so you don't try to justify your actions, and you focus only on your part, and you don't expect anything back from that person that you're trying to make amends to. Right? If you're going into this thinking that you're going to get an apology from them, you're going into it for the wrong reasons. If you get one, that would be wonderful. You may not. And then, you want to make restitution where possible. If you've, uh, if you've borrowed something and you didn't return it, then now's the time. If you've lost it, then you go buy another one and you give them that. If you owe somebody some money, then you pay it back. Now, it's probably worth making a note here that the more serious your offense is, the less likely that you're going to be able to make restitution for it. Some things you just can't restore that you've taken away from people. But if that's the case, don't ever underestimate the power of a truly sincere apology. If you go at this with the right attitude and you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and I don't deserve your forgiveness, but is there any way that I can make amends to you? And that's, you just leave it there. And then finally is the appropriateness of it. In Proverbs it says, thoughtless words can wound as deeply as any sword, but wise words spoken but wisely spoken words can heal. Now, there are some situations where it would be unwise for you to contact the people that have been hurt. Remember, we had a qualifier on this step, if you remember, where it said, except where it would be, um, when to do so would harm them or others. Okay, so there are some situations where you wouldn't want to go back because to do so would just open up a can of worms and probably make the situation worse than it was. Okay? You know, you don't want to contact an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend or something who's now married to somebody else and, and just go through this whole thing. You know, that's, no. Just do it. Use the open chair technique. Use the letter. Okay? Do it that way. Don't go stir up something in their life that they're now going to have to deal with. Like the husband's going, well, who was that? You know, and why are you crying? And, and, all right. And then the third is to refocus your life. All right. And this is a, got another testimony for us. And this guy's testimony is really a powerful one. So this is Carl, I believe. I'm Carl, and I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm in recovery from my habits, hurts, and hang-ups. Today I want to share about my lifelong struggle with fear and how my higher power, Jesus Christ, my higher power, is using my weaknesses for my good and His glory. I've spent most of my life pretending that I'm braver than I feel. 
when you're 6'3 and 210 pounds. It can be shameful to admit to insecurity, worthlessness, panic, anxiety, and downright terror. However, I obviously wasn't always this big, and that's where my story begins. I was raised primarily in the 1950s by an alcoholic father and a controlling, enabling mother. I want to state up front that even though my parents are still practicing alcoholics, I love them very much, and we have a pretty good relationship. Child rearing was much stricter in the 1950s, but my parents were ultra strict. There was no physical abuse, but they used rage and fear to intimidate me and my brothers and sisters into submission. Because we were isolated from other families, it wasn't until years later that I realized that other kids voiced their own opinions in a family setting. Not in my family, you didn't. When complimented on how well-behaved his kids were, my dad would say that children are to be seen and not heard. There were two incidents when I was about six years old that really get at the genesis of my fear. My family was returning home from visiting my grandparents late one night when I decided to offer a stick of gum to my siblings. Dad immediately knew that I had stolen the gum from my grandparents and confronted me. I admitted my transgression and expected a good spanking when we got home. However, Dad pulled over and asked if I knew what happens to thieves. I said no, and he replied that they have to go to prison. He pointed to a big, dark, scary-looking building and told me that it was the prison I would be staying in for the next 20 years. He instructed me to hand over all my possessions and that I should beg for God's forgiveness. My brother and sisters and I were screaming in fear. That incident and a similar one a year later taught me that both my parents and God not only couldn't contain my fear, but that their approval of me was extremely conditional based upon my behavior. I know that my spirit was broken. I learned to anticipate my parents' moods and feed them the appropriate response along with a happy face, ready to do a quick 180 if I had guessed wrong. Instead of becoming resentful, I tried harder to please. I craved love and affection, but they were incapable of giving it. My experiences at home were reinforced by my religious upbringing. I was taught that my salvation was my responsibility based on how perfect I was. If I led a perfect life and then committed one mortal sin and died without confessing it, God would send me to hell for all eternity. What made this scenario even more terrifying was that there was no one to share with. The expectation was perfect adherence to the Ten Commandments and under my own power. Since there was no provision for failure or progress, no one could admit their struggles. So I learned to put on a mask of self-righteous piety, while inside I was consumed by the terror and guilt of my inability to live up to the standards that I assumed everyone else was. My concept of God was based upon the model of my dad as the unpleasable parent, so I tried to appease the wrath of both by going to a seminary to study for the priesthood. I hoped to escape my feelings of self-condemnation and earn the love I desperately desired. But there was no escape there either. From day one, I compared myself with the other seminarians and felt that I came up short. Not only did I feel that they were all more godly than I, I felt that God himself viewed me as a hypocrite. I wanted to leave after the first six months but it took two more years to build up the courage to face my dad's disappointment of not having a son as a priest. Let me jump ahead to briefly discuss my marriage. We went together for six years and were married for 19 years before divorcing in 1987. Margaret came from an extremely physically abusive family. Conflict was what she was used to, just like total compliance was normal for me. We fought often, and after token resistance, I'd feel fearfully guilty and give in. We both got what we wanted and were miserable. Our sex life was the best part of our relationship, but there was no intimacy outside of the bedroom. Over time, she gained 120 pounds, and I tried to be supportive. When that didn't work, I should have lovingly confronted her. 
Instead, I had a pity party and started going to prostitutes. Finally, after 19 years, five miscarriages, and countless misery, she left me. I spent the next three months in severe depression and isolation. To put the capper on the whole thing, while dealing with my self-esteem issues, my therapist fell asleep. <laughs> that was the final straw. <laughs> I decided for the first time in my life to live for myself with re without regard for others' approval. I partied for the next four years, and for a while I had fun, but the price tag was steep. I got addicted to prostitutes and pornography, tried drugs, and became an alcoholic. No matter how much I used, I couldn't escape the childlike fear that still gripped me. So I tried confronting it. For four years, I worked as a bouncer at a local bar, smuggled steroids across the border for my personal use, took karate, and got tattoos. But all these remedies were only skin deep. Gradually, I realized how I had traded one form of bondage for another and how empty it all was, and I was. God reached out lovingly to me with the first of many angels he sent my way since. My buddy Frank, a fellow bouncer, began sowing the seeds that God caused to take root when the next angel, my dear friend Andy, invited me to church. For the first time, I heard who Jesus really is. I'd been taught that Jesus was a victim. Now I heard that he chose to die, and he did it for me. I also heard what grace is. Amazing. I still love the fact that the Lord used a beautiful dancer from that drinking establishment to draw me to him. He knew where my focus was. It took a DUI to get me into recovery. I started attending AA in November of 1990. I managed to stay sober by going to meetings, but it wasn't until I started attending Saddleback that the other miracles started happening. Pastor Rick began a series on recovery, and I was blessed by Brett's testimony. The following Friday, the Lord introduced me to my brothers and sisters in Celebrate Recovery, and I knew that I was home at last. They didn't enable me, judge me, or attempt to fix me. Mostly, they gave me what I've been looking for all my life, unconditional love. They even threw in some hugs as a bonus. In regard to my hurts, the Lord has surrounded me with the loving support of my ACA family, plus time and His grace. Working the amend step has provided closure with my ex-wife and brought healing to the relationship with my parents. God was also at the center of my amends on three separate occasions. The first was to the owner of the bar where I worked as a bouncer for four years. I had stolen probably $3,000 over time. I had stopped working in the bar but was doing their plant service. I didn't have the money, but God urged me to step out. Pride had held me back because the owner, Connie, had put me up on a pedestal, and I knew that my honesty would destroy her illusions. When I confessed, I expected her notorious temper to explode and a demand for immediate repayment. Instead, I received God's mercy and grace as she first winced, then said, I forgive you. Let's forget it and put it behind us. The second instance was even more touchy because I had stolen thousands of dollars in plants from my biggest supplier. I broached the subject with his office manager and was told that the owner was likely to not only refuse to accept my confession and restitution, but would most certainly cut off my business. God encouraged me to go forward despite my anxiety and shame at having broken the trust of this friend and a business associate. He not only accepted my amends and money order for the full amount stolen, but a couple of weeks later, I received, I received a letter of gratitude, and our relationship is now closer than ever. The third amends was one similar to the last one in that it involved the theft of plants. 
However, I had forgotten this, so the Lord brought it to my attention. <laughs> it was a small firm in San Diego, and it happened so long ago that I couldn't remember the name of the firm. I prayed about it, but just couldn't bring it to mind. Of course, my old alcoholic thinking tried to use that as an excuse to justify avoiding it, but God said no way and kept after me. Finally, one day as I'm driving along, God again laid it on my heart and I got frustrated. Lord, I said, I don't have time to drive to San Diego to pay the money, so would you please let me remember? No sooner had I finished asking than the firm's delivery truck pulled up alongside. <laughs> Is God awesome and does he have a sense of humor? <laughs> Not only did I make the amends and mail them my check, but I got the chance to witness to them because they were incredulous over why over 10 years that I would take this step. Many more of God's angels have and still encourage me through difficult times, including Lisa, Tim, Lori, Joe, Kathy, Bob, and the men in my ACA group. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't mention Carrie Wood, who at a most difficult period of her own recovery always managed to unselfishly model God's grace to me. Please forgive me for mentioning the names of people unfamiliar to you. I need to do it, however, to remind myself how blessed I am by their presence in my life and to focus on the fact that God is relational. He designed recovery to be worked in relationship with others. It wasn't until God pulled me out of my isolation through the intervention of these angels that I started experiencing the freedom that was missing from my futile attempts of recovery through self-effort. In regard to my habits, last November, I celebrated 11 years of sobriety. I also give thanks for 10 years of celibacy. I am so grateful to the Lord for his 12 steps which provided the essential structure, as well as my primary accountability partners, Tim and Bob. I couldn't ask for better representatives of godly men. Since my last testimony, the most incredible growth has occurred in the area of my hang-ups. Since that time, the Lord has brought me much healing in the area of victimization. When I was growing up, I was a victim. I didn't even have ownership of my own feelings and opinions. I was powerless. I had no problem embracing the first step. Like Paul, I embraced my weaknesses. Unfortunately, I was stuck there. My fear kept me from seeing this as a positional truth, that I glory in my weaknesses so that I can rely on the power of Christ. 1 John 4, 13 and 14 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I had a God problem. My childhood terror of God was based upon fear and punishment for not living perfectly. But then he revealed the amazing truth that freed me from my terror of him. Philippians 2.13, familiar to all of us. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The proof that he loves me is, in, is the fact of my sobriety. All I did was to stay involved in the process. I kept coming back. My works-oriented perfectionism ran into the reality of my powerlessness. He did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He loved me enough to empower the gift that transformed my life. By what I've shared so far, you can probably discern that my greatest struggle has been in trying to reconcile the fear-based legalistic theology of my religious upbringing with the reality of who God really is and what he's really like. 
If any of you struggle with the difficulty of connecting with God on an intimate basis or experiencing God's unconditional acceptance of you, I understand. God continues to work on these issues through the process of recovery in my life. First, he has given me the opportunity to explore the dynamics and depth through our user-friendly 12-step workbooks in relationship with my support group. And secondly, God helps me to combat the old lies through the study of the truth embodied in our Life Recovery Bible. By proactively utilizing these resources, I choose not to be held victim to my feelings, but instead I commit to live by faith despite my feelings. Another of God's angels, Lori, shared a verse that completely transformed my old religious concept of Jesus as victim into my powerful yet loving higher power. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His power and unconditional love have given me a passion to be used by him to serve others, despite some lingering childhood fear. That weakness enables Jesus to display mercy and compassion through me. I'm his vessel, especially as a leader, a co-leader of the ACA group and encourager coach for the men's recovery groups. I'm also grateful to serve as co-leader of Teens and Temptations. This ministry is especially close to my heart because we use God's principles of loving intervention and restoration embodied in Celebrate Recovery to prevent some of those kids from becoming addicts and winding up here by God's grace. In closing, I want to quote two of my favorite scriptures. The first is to help keep me grounded and to not get prideful. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The second is my life verse and provides the answer of hope for everyone like me who struggles with perfectionism. Jesus Christ, my higher power, is perfect, so I can relax and let him be God. For all you other grace lovers out there, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and hallelujah. Now there is a man who refocused his life. So how do you do the same thing? You put your heart right, you release, and you forgive. You reach out to God, you ask Jesus into your life, and then he gives you the forgiveness that you need to let go of all the hurts and the things that are bothering you, and you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it on a daily basis until it's gone. And then you face the world again. You don't withdraw, you don't hide in a shell. You resume living, and you take chances, and you say, I'm not a victim anymore. And you start looking ahead, not behind. Wouldn't you like to be free from all of that relational garbage? Then take step six. I offer you that challenge today. Amen. Um... kill that. Sort of close today, we were talking um, in our staff meeting last week, and, um, and, I, and I was actually praying about this this morning, and I think there are three reasons why, well, let me say that a different way. There are more than three reasons, but I'd say there are three primary reasons why people come to a church service. They come to worship, come to hear God's word, and thirdly, I think they come to experience God. 
And oddly enough, there are three parts of our service. We worship at the beginning. We hear a message from God. And then we have a time of prayer at the end, which gives people an opportunity to experience God. And the thing we were talking about is that it doesn't seem like a lot of people take advantage of that third part of the service. And I may be somewhat at fault for that by kind of including that part with the whole dismissal. Um, but let me just say this. If, if you're like me and you don't just want a, a faith that is passive, if you believe that it's possible to have an active relationship with God, where God answers prayer and God touches us, then I would really encourage you to stay for that third part of the service and not just rush out the door. Now that said, I understand people have all kinds of reasons for needing to leave. And so no one is going to look at you any differently if you have to go. But if you don't, then maybe you ought to stick around and see what God might want to do or how God might want to touch you. Now my friend Ray here came up to me last week. He shared something with me. And then he also happened to mention that his arm was bothering him. Do you mind if I share this story? And he, he was like, he couldn't, his arm was, he's having problems with his shoulder. He, he couldn't really get his arm up. And so I said, well, let's pray about it. Novel thought. We're in church. So we pray. Put my hands on his arm. Prayer lasted maybe, what, 30 seconds? I said, okay, see, try your arm now. He goes, like this. And I'm not kidding you, the look on, on Ray's face, I wish I had a camera with the image of the look on his face after he did that, because he was just like, that's what God wants to do. That's how we experience his grace. Yes, we experience it through reading his word, by worshiping him. Those are all valid ways of experiencing his grace. I became a pastor in, in this movement in particular because I believe there's more. I believe all the stuff that it says in scripture is true and still is true. You know, there are folks that think otherwise, and that's okay. I just don't. And I've seen too much in my life to ever go back and think, like, like the frozen chosen. And so as we kind of transition now into our third phase of the service, take advantage of this. We're just going to pray and see what God wants to do. And, and if you've got anything going on in your life, it doesn't have to be a hurt shoulder. If it is, we'd love to pray for it or hurt anything. But there's so many other things that we can take to God and, and rely on that scripture where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. That's all it takes, two. You and the person praying for you, that's two. So don't, unless there's a good valid reason, don't be in such a hurry to rush off. Laney had to leave, but we're going to put some music on and uh, turn the lights down. And so it'll just be a time to uh, just continue to worship, to sit there, you know, maybe you sit there for a moment or two and you say, God, what would you like to do today? And God may impress you upon you to go up for prayer with someone. Or to seek out somebody else that's just sitting here, that, that all of a sudden this name comes to you and, and you're like, oh, I wonder why all of a sudden 
the name Lindsay popped into my head. Well, I would suggest that maybe you should go, you know, talk to Lindsay or whoever, whatever name, you know, comes, comes, comes in. So if we could turn the lights off, down, I should say. And if I could have those who uh, have been released to pray to come forward. And I can personally vouch for all of these people as being really nice. So you don't have to really worry that they're going to snap at you or make fun of you or anything. They're really nice people. (laughs) Even Donna, who's a mean old college professor, she's even nice. So let's pray. And like I said, if you need to go, that's okay. But, but you know, and if now's not the time, then come back tonight at 5 o'clock. Come back for Holy Spirit night. Because that, that's a time when we really can focus on experiencing God's Spirit. So don't sell that short. Laney is really working hard to try to um, increase and add to the worship experience of that time. And so... Uh, there'll be a great time of worship, and then we'll just kind of see what the Holy Spirit chooses to do. So if you can, come back and join us at 5. So Father God, I just give you thanks. I give you praise. And once again, I just ask you to come. And, And Father, we know that you're always here, but we say that sort of in anticipation of a move of your Holy Spirit, that you would just come And touch your people. Touch them with healing. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. Just touch us with your presence, God. Bless all these, your people who are gathered here. Bless them as they leave and then bless them again as they move on into their week. Bless them to be a blessing to someone else. A vessel, just like Carl spoke of, of your mercy and grace. And so we give you all the praise and honor and glory. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.